I'm Jason Blair from Austin, Texas, and you're listening to the IP Fridays podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 127 of IP Fridays. I am Rolf Klesen and my co-host Ken Suzanne and I welcome you to this episode. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. That would help us a lot. Today's interview guest is Jason Blair. He has been an examining attorney at the USPTO for sound and motion marks and has been a co-author of the trademark manual of examining procedure at the USPTO. And he has just switched law firms from Monk Wilson Mandala to Smith Gambrel Russell in Austin, Texas. And my co-host Ken Suzanne is interviewing him about the protection of sound trademarks. Before we jump into the interview, I have some news for you. China just has introduced a new rule that patent owners can only set license rates for patents at Chinese courts. So for example, if Apple had a patent on a certain technology in a mobile phone, they can not use US courts to set a license uh, rate for this patent but they would have to go to a Chinese court if the mobile phone maker is a Chinese company. And the Chinese courts seem to be pricing patent licenses at half the levels paid in the West. So that means uh, billions of dollars of damages to Western companies. So the EU is taking China to the World Trade Organization for alleged patent infringements that are costing the companies billions of euros. The US and Japan are expected to join the EU's request for WTO consultations. China now has 60 days to respond after which Brussels could ask for a dispute settlement panel to rule on the matter. The US Copyright Office has refused to register an AI-generated work, finding that human authorship is a prerequisite to copyright protection. In 2018, Stephen Thaler, and you may know this name from the different disputes about inventorship of AI with patents. He applied to register a copyright claim indicating that a creativity machine as the author and himself as the owner of the machine. The review board held that the machine cannot enter in, into any binding legal contract and secondly the doctrine is about ownership and not the existence of a valid copyright. Now something for the privacy-concerned lawyers among our listeners. Clearview AI reported that they are on track to collect 100 billion photos of people worldwide, having the largest database of people and facial recognition photos in a database. It seems that they are collecting these images off of the internet just like any other browsers, but without the explicit consent of the people who are depicted in the images. 
Clearview AI is now facing various privacy lawsuits and they have just lost an important ruling uh, in Illinois. Now let's jump into the interview with Jason Blair. Our guest today on the IP Fridays podcast is Jason Blair. Jason is an attorney with the Texas law firm of Monk Wilson Mandala and handles a wide variety of intellectual property matters with an emphasis on trademark, trade dress, and copyright issues. Before entering private practice, Jason was an examining attorney for the United States Patent and Trademark Office for over a dozen years. While at the USPTO, he examined over 15,000 trademark applications. In 2008, Jason was named the USPTO's Special Marks Examiner for Sound and Motion Marks and was instrumental in implementing agency policy standards and procedures for trademarks incorporating sound or motion. In addition to examining all of the sound and motion mark applications, Jason drafted several provisions of the Trademark Manual of Examining Procedure dealing with those types of marks and was directly involved in the formulation of sound and motion mark policies. He also worked with foreign government officials in efforts to harmonize sound and motion mark practices globally. A professional singer and pianist from the age of six, Jason began his childhood career performing in Branson, Missouri, and eventually moved to Los Angeles, where he not only performed as a musical artist, but also worked in music production and promotion with several major label recording artists. Welcome, Jason, to IP Fridays. Well, thanks for having me, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Jason, uh, tell us, what led you to the practice of law? Uh, actually, I was at UCLA, and as you said in my intro, I was uh, involved in, in music and music production, and one day I was walking through campus, and there was a sign that said UCLA was having an entertainment law symposium, and so I saw the word entertainment. The word law didn't really mean that much to me, but uh, I figured I would attend it. It was a sort of a CLE event uh, where, you know, they'd have like you know, the head of a major studio and then, you know, an entertainment law firm talk about, you know, this is the late 90s. So Napster's just hitting the scene and everybody's sort of freaking about, out about how the uh, the industry is going to change with uh, with downloads and the onslaught of the Internet. And so uh, uh, just hearing a lot of these issues for the first time, it was it was just very intriguing to me. So um, I kind of joked that uh, at the time, my, my A career plan was to pretty much uh, have Justin Timberlake's career, uh, but my backup plan would be uh, getting into intellectual property and, and uh, doing copyrights and trademarks. It just, it just fascinated me. So, wow. Intriguing, yeah. Jason. Well, let's get into the content for today, and that's we're going to talk about sound, protecting sound as a trademark. How does one protect sound as a trademark in the United States? And what is the general process for filing for protection at the USPTO? Well, as far as uh, the, the uh, protection, it, it, it's it's treated generally like like any other trademark. Uh, you, you don't necessarily have to have a registration in order to have trademark rights in a sound. Mm -hmm. uh, but registration, I think, especially for non-traditional marks, is, is always a great idea in that um, you know, third parties might not recognize there are claims to IP rights in, in some of these non-traditional marks. So, so getting a registration, I think, is, is very good to provide public notice uh, to other people, uh, more so, I think, than, 
you know, most people just think of a trademark as being your your logo or your slogan or your or your, your name of your company. And, and this would really send a signal uh, that, you know, this is more than just what you think of as a traditional trademark. Um, as far as filing, uh, when I came on board at the USPTO, that they really had no capability of uploading anything beyond a JPEG image. Uh, and so you, you couldn't upload the sound or, or the video to uh, the system at the USPTO. Uh, and the rules just said you had to provide a description of the mark. Um, but at the time, uh, really nobody knew how specific you needed to be with a description of a mark. And uh, a good example I, I provide is that uh, when I came on board 20th Century Fox's uh, uh, trademark for their sound mark, the description just said the mark consists of orchestral fanfare, which was really broad. Uh, I think we all kind of know what what that sound is, but when you look on the face of the registration, it was it was very vague. So um, I wanted to come up with some policies where we were being a little more specific so everybody understood what the sounds were. Um, now the, the system does allow you to upload the sound, and that's actually a requirement of a, of a sound mark when you file is you need to submit uh, what they call the audio reproduction file. It's just basically the, the sound itself. Um, and and that way it provides a little bit more clarity. But even with that, um, you know, the sounds aren't something that's printed on a registration certificate. So uh, really having the description of the mark and, and being specific about what's included is, is a, probably the most important part of the trademark application um, for uh, applying. Um, mm -hmm. Generally, descriptions of marks are things that I think a lot of uh, attorneys kind of consider a throwaway. When you've got a stylized mark, it's just sort of, you know, the mark consists of such and such words stylized. And, you know, if, if it's not really specific enough, they'll allow the USPTO examiner to suggest something maybe a little more specific. But it's it's not something that's really thought of uh, in the filing process. But when you're filing for a non-traditional mark, those mark descriptions really become important um, in large part because they, they define um, what your mark is. So it, it's something that I would say is, is very important when you're filing. So details, right? Being as right. detailed as possible when you're preparing that application for the sound mark description. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, especially if it's got a musical component, um, a, a lot of times with me, me a musician, um, you'd have attorneys call and you understandably, they don't really understand music. And so they were having sometimes a hard time describing uh, what was involved that, you know, I would generally like to describe not just the instrument playing the sound, but also the duration of the note and the octave of the note um, for people that follow music. Like a lot of people will apply and say the mark consists of, you know, notes that go, you know, C, D, E. Well, the question is, is are those on the same octave? So it's C, D, E, or is it C and then going up an octave, D, and then way down mm -hmm. to a low E. And so describing those octaves, I think, is also important uh, because it could really um, make a difference in, in what, what you hear. Um, so that makes sense. Yeah. Now, can you search a sound mark before filing at the USPTO? And should you search before you file that application? Um, I would suggest searching um, the the way to search for a sound mark application on the on the test database at the USPTO is uh, to put in 
uh, there, there's a, a field called the mark design uh, design field. So like uh, number one is typed drawings. Number four is standard character marks. Number two are design marks that don't have any wording. If you type in number six and then in little brackets, MD after the six, that will pull up any mark that does not have any visual element whatsoever. So mm -hmm. it pulls up sounds, but it also pulls up scent marks, but there really aren't that many scent marks. Um, and that would be N as in Nancy, right? ND? Uh, M as in Mary. So oh, M. M, M as in Mary. Okay. Yeah, mark, mark drawing field. So it's Got it. MD, okay. and that's what it stands for. So that would pull up any sound and scent mark but you can usually filter out the scent marks um, if you need to narrow it down further than that then you can sort of search for keywords in a description of a mark so um, uh, you know if you wanted to say um, you know a wolf howl or something type in howl and then de in brackets for description that that searches the mark description field so those and then are the ways you could search. is there a way once you land on a particular mark to listen to that sound or do you have to go backtrack and find the registration and then find the specimen it's a little bit uh onerous in that when you're looking at it on tests it only has the mark description um so what you actually have to do if you want to hear the mark is then click on the link to open tsdr and then go into the file history and if it's you know filed within the last 10 to 12 years um, there will generally be a, a WAV file or an MP3 file in the in the uh, history, so you can open it up and launch a player and do it that. But it's not something where you can just sort of scroll through and test and play them directly from tests. So it could be a little bit onerous. But uh, the fact of the matter is, sound marks. There's you know I I think there are less than a thousand, so it's not like you usually have to wade through hundreds of them to. Um, figure out what's out there. Now, Jason, while you were examining these sound mark applications over the years, was there a particular issue that would constantly pop up that would be the subject of an office action that you would issue? Well, uh, you know, generally beyond the procedural issues, at first, most people didn't quite understand what they needed to file as far as the description, which we've already talked about. So they would tend to be too broad, uh, you know, maybe not submitting the audio file or things like that. Uh, but beyond those procedural issues, you usually tend to see the same sort of things that you would see in, in a lot of non-traditional mark applications, which are either failure to function uh, or a functionality refusal. Um, you know, we, we've had applicants come in for, uh, you know, like a wide mouth beer can, and then they, they want to sort of trademark the sound of the, the the can opening and it's like well that's sort of just a you know a byproduct of of opening a can uh you sure. know, it, so you get a lot of that type of stuff um and then just really kind of especially when it comes to goods is how does this sound uh relate to goods because there's still that requirement in u.s law that you know the mark should either be on the goods or on the package for the goods, which is sort of impractical for a lot of goods. So um, most of the time we would want to see sort of a point of sale display or something like that. Whereas a lot of times the specimens come in, it's it's just sort of like a a website advertisement, which would which would be acceptable as a specimen for services, but for goods it's obviously much much harder to show. Um, 
did 2D likelihood of confusion come up from time to time? Not too much with, mm -hmm. like I said, there's probably about a thousand sound marks. So really, if you're stepping on somebody else's toes, you're kind of probably intentionally doing it. I don't think people sort of, you know, there's not that critical mass of marks yet where you're sort of randomly uh, landing on somebody else's mark. Got um, it. So 2D didn't happen a lot with those. Now for preparing the specimen for sound marks, any practical tips? Um, are there any certain types of file types that people need to be aware of or the clarity of those uh, specimens? Yes. Uh, so th that was one big issue when I started sound marks is our, our IT team at the USPTO was freaking out about how the servers would handle all this extra data. Obviously, uh, you know, a sound file or a video file, or they're much larger than a JPEG image. So the, the IT team at the USPTO was really worried about our servers. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we they wanted to cap the size of the files you could submit for video files to 30 megabytes, which is fairly low by today's standards. So a lot of times if people want to submit a, a video file that's, you know, any more than 30 seconds long and, you know, they're uploading them in, you know, 1080p or 4k, you're going to go over that file size limit. So uh, sometimes people would compress them to death so that then when you're playing it back on on my end as an examiner, everything was so blurry, I couldn't really actually read it. So uh, you have to sort of uh, you make sure that you're compressing things so that it's still legible. Um, it fits within that file size requirement. And then the other issue is, the PTO, uh, the federal government, every every piece of software has to be approved by the GSA to be sort of secure for, uh, you know, the unfortunately the NSA and the CIA, the, the USPTO still has to have all those security protocols. So anytime there's a new codec or impression algorithm, you know, algorithm that compresses the stuff. Uh, it has to go through this approval process before it can be loaded onto USPTO computers. So while people outside the government are just used to getting their monthly update from Apple or Microsoft to, you know, update their drivers, um, that usually lags behind at the government by a year or two. So a lot of times you'd get uh, files uh, and then you would go to play them. And from inside the PTO, it would just say this codec is not recognized and the video format is not playable um, just because it's it's so new. Um, so I would really say try to stick to those standard uh, encoding uh, programs when you're when you're sending video files, because I'm sure it plays just fine on your brand new Windows 11, you know, uh, Dell. Sure. Keep it simple, basically. Right. Keep it right. so that the examiner can access it and review it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, now, I understand that you drafted some sections of the TMEP on sound marks uh, and other non-traditional marks. Uh, could you yeah. tell us a little bit about those? And are there any particular sections our listeners should uh, pay close attention to uh, during the, their preparing of applications? Sure. Uh, yeah, when I started at the PTO, there was pretty much uh, two sentences in the TMEP that said, according to the Supreme Court in the NBC case, sounds can function as a trademark. And because the system does not allow sound marks to be uploaded, the applicant must submit a description of the mark. That Very was bare really bones. Bare bones. All the guidance, yeah. right. So uh, getting these policies in place, uh, the sections that... Um, 
you know, I wrote at least the first draft of is kind of a, a wish list. And then of course it goes through a lot of review and comment and, and, uh, you know, didn't come out exactly what I had drafted at first, but, uh, those sections uh, that deal with sound are primarily, um, 80709, which deals with the drawing of the mark, and and since there is no drawing, uh, how the description really controls, and what you need to provide as far as the description and the, the audio file. Um, and then uh, 90403F, uh, F is in Frank, and that deals with uh, specimens and uh, pretty much sort of the technical issues of specimens, how big the file size must be, what what format they must be keep them in windows format they don't run any apple products at the uspto um and then uh 1202.15 uh which really just talks about sort of uh you know the functionality uh requirements that we look for in sound marks so those are the three um sort of sections of the tmep that i i, I help craft they've you know they've changed over time but uh those are those are the three that really deal sort of directly with with sound marks mm -hmm. now let's just talk about the interplay with u.s copyright law do you recommend filing a copyright application for the same sound and what would be the benefits for filing for copyright protection well registration? yeah that's always something that we've sort of had a a big uh issue with when we we put these rules into place because uh, you know there are a lot of fair use exceptions under the copyright law that don't necessarily apply in uh in trademark law and so uh we were especially worried with with sound marks especially if people come in for sound marks and they're in class nine or they're in class 41 uh for entertainment services if people would try to uh you know sort of dually claim a copyright right and then also a, a trademark right in in sort of the sound in, in a way to sort of uh uh cut off those those fair use uh uh exceptions under the copyright law uh, mm -hmm. as an example sort of i we were sort of freaking out like you know what if the rolling stones came in and applied for dun, 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 just real quick as as you know the intro to satisfaction but claimed it for entertainment services or for media uh recording services so um you know i think our stance would be that would be functional that you're sort of uh you know the 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 function of the audio is to listen to it and enjoy it so therefore it's not really being used as a as a brand, but what, you know, what if they were in some way where they, you know, at the beginning of every appearance, they sort of play it or, uh, mm -hmm. in a way that's not necessarily the sound, how would that sort of cross the line into, into copyright then, uh, we, we would really want to keep those distinct from one another. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that, you know, I don't think there's really been a case on point. I think uh, we've had a few, um, like rappers have come in uh pitbull he whenever he raps before he raps he goes and then he goes like 305 and then he starts rapping so he came in and applied for that sound um and then that question is if you're a if you're a cover band or you're a you're sort of a you know you're out and you're performing pitbull songs which you have a right to do under the copyright law uh, but if you go 
is is that a uh, uh, fair use under copyright or is that you, you know sort of a trademark thing that really only he should do when he raps i would argue if you do it in the in the course of performing you still have that fair use under the copyright law so uh, you know i i just but no one's really brought that uh you know, complaint. I would like to see somebody try. I hope they don't <laughs> in a way, but uh, it's it's a very interesting question to see how that interplay would be now that you've sort of got the ability to, you know, both copyright and trademark a sound. Certainly a developing area, particularly with what's going on on the internet, social media. I mean, there's a lot of areas and venues for infringement to occur. Right. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about... Um, a person's voice. If a if a person's voice is heard in a sound mark, do you need that person's consent? Will the USPTO require that? The USPTO won't require it, um, which is interesting. If you if you look at the statute, it it talks about you know getting a consent for their their name, image, or likeness, which their voice theoretically. Uh, could be their likeness, but uh, the PTO is not requiring it. I still think it's a best practice because I do think that the person uh, has a right under, you know, Section 43 um, mm -hmm. to uh, to to cancel if, if you don't get that consent. Uh, but as far as strict filing purposes, the, the USPTO will not refuse the application if you don't provide the consent. Uh, but I would say still do it. <laughs> Sure, as a best practice. Now, let's also talk about trademark renewals. You come to the point where it's time to renew that sound mark. There's been some changes. Uh, any issues that might pop up? How would you go about renewing that sound mark? Well, as registration. Far as Right. As far as renewing it, I, I think that uh, it's just making sure that you've got a got a specimen that shows continued use. I know some of the earlier registrations from you know probably pre. 2009 a lot of times they were just submitting the sound itself as as a specimen so when you're coming up on renewal you know that might have worked uh you know maybe 10 years ago that kind of be about the borderline time where we we were accepting that but now we really want to see that sound being used if it's for a service in a full advertisement or or on a website um you know not you know, shown in context rather than just here's the sound by itself. Cause that right. really, if you think about it, the sound itself is just sort of like, it's akin to the drawing and you can't just use the drawing as a specimen. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I would just say that that's, that's something that if you're coming up for renewal and they've accepted it before, uh, that most likely won't fly this time around. You've got to have a real specimen in context. Let's switch gears to motion marks. Uh, what are motion marks and are, are there any best practices if you're preparing an application to protect a motion mark? Yeah, so I kind of got involved in motion marks because uh, a lot of the specimens for sound marks tended to be video files. And at the time, the USPTO system had a lot of issues with video files. It would reject them a lot and they, they just weren't fitting in the all those issues that we sort of talked about previously. And of course, motion marks have those same sort of uh, specimens. They tend to be video files. So just really, I kind of landed on it by default because I was dealing a lot with uh, applicants and, and IT people being mutually frustrated because the system was not, uh, uh, you know, recognizing it. And so, uh, so I kind of landed on those by 
by default having that knowledge. Um, really, motion marks are just any kind of mark where uh, something happens where maybe the, the movement itself is distinctive. Um, to be honest, I have... I think sound marks are a lot more fun. There's very few motion marks I've seen where I've thought that if the motion itself was really sort of the predominantly distinctive part of the mark, uh, usually there's a visual element that even if it was just displayed static and not moving, that's usually what I see as the dominant part. I know like uh, Vanguard Insurance has a motion mark where the sailboat comes in from the side and then the, the Vanguard logo comes down from the top and it kind of makes this intro. But really, the if the if the boat was sitting still and the mark was sitting still, I, I you know, it's very rare that I, I see them where I'm like, wow, the motion is really the the standout part of that mark. Um, you do get a few interesting ones where they're they're trying to um, claim something like a, the, the example uh, is a, a Salt Bay the uh, the uh, the chef and he has this uh, I've seen it on a Super Bowl ad where he comes out and he just sort of flings uh, salt and, and seasonings over his steaks in a very uh, sort of I don't know flamboyant you know unique way um, but how do you, you know how do you sort of encapsulate that in a, in a trademark? I mean, it, it, it's very hard to show, um, especially with the PTO. You have to provide still images. Uh, you can put up to five in a, in a mark drawing. But when he comes out and does that, it's sort of like, well, what is the actual mark there? Is it just his arm? Is it his whole body? Um, you know, the most of his body standing still. So th th there are definitely some interesting issues with motion marks, but, um, you know, rarely do I see them where somebody's got something that's just the motion itself is so stand out from the rest of the, mm -hmm. the image. Do, would you often use generic, uh, generic refusal or descriptiveness? Would that pop up in any office actions? Um, not so much genericness, uh, but usually it's, it's a failure to function issue. Failure to function. Um, yeah. We're seeing that a lot now these days. Yeah, from the you USB get that channel. a lot. There's a lot of people that come in and they want to sort of, uh, claim a trademark right in their, in their dance moves. Uh, but when the services are dancing or dancing instruction, the dance itself is, is, is functional there, you know, there, there could be maybe be a, a copyright in the performance, but that's not really, um, you know, your, your, your brand, I guess you consider like maybe if it's so iconic, like, you know, Michael Jackson doing the moonwalk at the, the Motown 25th anniversary back in the eighties, it would just, you think of that move, but at the same time, it's, it's part of the performance itself. And, and, and so really I think copyright is where you want to look at. If, if you were a dance uh, instruction company and you came up with, let's say a, a spinning set of shoes and you have that on your website, could you apply for that potentially uh, as a, as a motion mark? Yeah. I mean, uh, if depending on how it's, it's portrayed, if, if the shoes mm -hmm. themselves are just doing it, obviously if it's, if it's incorporated in a, um, you know, in a dance routine where somebody's wearing the shoes and, and they're doing that, I, I think that's more in the realm of copyright, but mm -hmm. you know, you're right. If you go to their website and there's some sort of a, you know, shoe spinning in a, in a fun way. Sure. Um, I think you can get motion mark protection for that. Um, but even if the shoes were still going back to it, you know, if the shoes were standing still, is the commercial impression really all that 
different. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but I, I rarely see them where I think motion marks stand out like a ton. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're close to the end of our podcast interview today, but I do want to touch upon uh, certification marks. Uh, sure. What are they and any practical tips for preparing and filing applications? So certification marks are basically a, a mark where you as the certifier are not actually using the mark. You're just certifying that others are uh, meeting your standards. So a good example that I, uh, I think people are familiar with are like Idaho potatoes. All the potatoes have that Idaho potatoes logo on them. The mm -hmm. Idaho potato, I don't know who owns them, the I'll just say it's the Idaho Growers Association or something. Right, the, they, the registrant, yeah. Right, the registrant, they are just certifying that the farmer or the producer of these potatoes grew these in Idaho so that you as a consumer know where they came from, know that they meet a certain standard, um, but it's not something where there's just sort of one producer who's making that. Um and so as far as filing uh, marks like that, I, I think the issue that we get a lot is um, people that want to file them also tend to be someone who produces them. And well, you actually can't get a certification mark for something that you're actively providing. It has to be something that that your third party members are providing. And so a lot of times you'll see specimens uh, where um, Oh, say it's uh, for like a, a veterinary certification that you want to certify that veterinarians are, you know, have met your standards and gone through your course. And, and so they'll submit a specimen of, you know, sort of their own web page of, oh, you know, how to get this certification. What we really need to see is the veterinarian using that certification mark. So if people go into the, that veterinarian's office or, or on their web page, it says, you know, I'm certified, you know, by this way. So it's sure it's, it's, it's an indicia, an indicia that they've been certified by that third party. Right. So you've got to go out and get your members to provide your specimen rather than sort of you um, providing it yourself. That's where I see a lot of um, a lot of pitfalls with people applying for a certification. Uh, great stuff here, Jason. I wish we could talk longer, but I know our listeners probably are going on to do other things. And I really appreciate uh, your time today uh, for being on the IP Fridays podcast. Thanks again, Jason. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at IPFridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at IPFridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to IPFridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program 
are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.